Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Kat, we have a few things to cover today. So we're going to talk a little bit about focus brands and what you're doing with the company and how you're running it today. Uh, think about kind of macro trends that are impacting the consumer and retail space. And yeah. there's a lot of them that we're all experiencing as consumers and business leaders. Let's start doing a little bit of a deeper dive on your background. So you started as a waitress at Hooters uh, back as a teenager. It's true. <laughs> and rose through the ranks so quickly that by the age of 19, they asked you to open up worldwide franchises. And I think I read that you didn't have a passport nor had ever been on a plane at that point. No. So tell us a little bit about that journey in those early years. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I grew up in a, a super kind of simple household. My father was an alcoholic. We left my dad when I was nine. I helped raise my two younger sisters. I was the first person in my family uh, to ever get into college. And uh, so I needed to work to save up for college. I uh, was a double major, computer sciences and electrical engineering and psychology of women. I figured if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> uh, and so working in a restaurant that just happened to be Hooters uh, was no big deal, right? One out of two people in the United States have hospitality as their first job. And it was just a, a way to save for college and other expenses. Uh, but a few things happened. In my first year, I worked every job in the restaurant. When the cooks quit, I learned how to cook chicken wings. When they float, they're done. It's like super easy. Um, and, uh, and the same thing happened with the bartender and the manager. And unintentionally, in a short period of time, I had amassed a resume that prepared me to run restaurants, to open restaurants, to launch franchises. And that's how I uh, got asked to be a part of a training team to go launch the first Hooters franchise in Australia. And often miss part of that um, that I will, I will never uh, miss in terms of career growth is the company was growing rapidly. And when the company is growing rapidly, they need to look internally for talent. And so I benefited from that. It was also Hooters. So there weren't you know, Wharton MBAs beating down the door to come help expand the business. And so I benefited from that, truly. Uh, the company was privately held, completely vertically integrated. We owned almost our entire supply chain. And so as I moved up through that organization, uh, what was not known to the outside, but what I benefited from greatly is I had a chance to run manufacturing organizations and marketing organizations and be a part of industry segments um, in so many ways that most leaders will never get to experience in their lifetimes. And so it prepared me at an early age to become a general manager. Uh, I opened that restaurant in Australia when I was 19. I thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You know, who would ever give a girl like me a chance like that? Again, uh, and the answer is Hooters. <laughs> and, so, um, and so 60 days later, I came back. I made up my classes from college. They asked me to go launch the first of the franchises in Central America. Same thing happened in South America a few months later. And in about a year and a half, I had launched franchises on multiple continents. Uh, made a ton of mistakes and learned a lot of incredibly valuable lessons in business, branding, scaling, uh, team building, culture, but I was also failing college because I was never there. So I'm a college dropout. I dropped out uh, when I was 20 years old and took a corporate gig uh, in Atlanta at 
at Hooters corporate office running training and moved up and was VP of the company doing 800 million uh, in revenue by the time I was 26. That is amazing, so fantastic. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun <laughs> indeed, but it's a great segue how you left off um, with respect to my next question, which is fun fact is you received your MBA from Georgia State University mm -hmm. without ever having gotten your bachelor's degree. And as part of the admissions process, you sought out letters from 10 CEOs, mm -hmm. including Ted Turner, the founder of CNN. Yeah. How did you think about that? How did you go about doing that? Did yeah. anybody turn you down? No one turned me down. A few missed the deadline, but all were, um, were very, as I would come to learn, CEOs are very busy. Uh, but, but all were, were quite willing. And I didn't know if the Ted Turner endorsement would be a positive <laughs> or a negative, but I took the chance. And, uh, and, and it wasn't an odd thing because I had spent so many years volunteering in the restaurant industry. I had led mentoring programs for women. Uh, I led the Georgia Restaurant Association. I led political advocacy and fundraising that ended up leading to business-friendly policy. And so the people I called and asked for this small favor had a great deal of gratitude for the things I had done for the industry and in many cases um, for their employees. Uh, and people in the, you know, in our community. And so it wasn't a big deal to ask. I didn't ask for favors often and I gave a lot. And so they were all incredibly happy to put their name on me despite the fact that I did not have an undergraduate degree. Wow, well, really a testament to the reputation you clearly had built and how you had paid it forward yeah. in the prior years. So let's turn a little bit to focus brands, the seven brands that you're in charge of today, Auntie Anne's, Carvel, Cinnabon, McAllister's, Moe's, Schlotzky's, and my favorite, Jamba Juice, although I'm a huge <laughs> fan of all of these, combined, which are thousands of restaurants yeah. globally today. So for all of us in this room, how do you think about crafting a strategy for not just one brand or banner, but yeah. for seven kind of concurrently? Um, the good news is you don't have to think about redoing or building a strategy all the time, constantly for all the brands. But because we grow through acquisition, that's typically um, a front-loaded activity. And then if the brand matures under our ownership, certainly we need to revisit strategy and positioning and how the brand is winning or not winning. Uh, in the marketplace. And so uh, the way we approach it is first using the resources of our owner. Rourke Capital is the largest restaurant owner in the country, an incredible private equity sponsor. They were doing long hold before long hold was cool. <laughs> uh, and that makes a difference, right? They have a longer horizon, uh, believe in investing what is required to allow a brand and a business to punch above its weight. So first using their resources. Then second is layering in kind of one click down the resources at Focus Brands. And those resources are things like research and consumer insights. You can't craft um, an incredible strategy that's going to allow a mid-cap company to win in a hyper-competitive marketplace without being super accurate in what the consumer is believing and what they're doing. Uh, so we built a machine to allow us to have access to that that any of these businesses alone would likely not be able to afford. And so we leverage those resources uh, to get really close to where the customer is going and to form a hypothesis around the brand and the asset that we've bought, uh, where it has permission to travel, and then what are the business elements that would allow whatever that end destination is to be able to scale, not just within the markets where we do business and intend to grow, but within a franchise system, which uh, brings in a great deal of both beauty and growth uh, and engagement, but also uh, an incredible amount of complexity because we have 2,000 franchise owners in our system, uh, which means we don't make decisions alone. It's a very 
very large table of collaborators. And, and that's at a corporate level from a strategy perspective, mm -hmm. but from a personal management style, I've read yeah. you use this hot shot rule. So <laughs> talk, talk to us a little bit about what that is and how you use that to run the Yeah, group. so the hot shot rule is simply this. Um, it's a practice I developed 10 years ago because I, I was this college dropout, child of a single parent, Hooters employee. Again, there weren't really smart people lining up to be my mentors. And so I had to learn how to be my own self-coach. And so that's what this practice is. Uh, so I think first about a hot shot. I imagine uh, Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head of badassery, like all of you genetically modified into one amazing business person. And you take over my job tomorrow. I can't make any changes, you're just in my seat. And I ask myself this question, what's one thing and the first thing you would do differently? And the next question is, why can't that be me? The third activity is actually acting on that realization. And I do this religiously. It used to be quarterly. It was so effective, it became monthly. I do little mini versions on a weekly basis, and now my direct team does it, and members of their team do it as well. Uh, it demonstrates, and, and then, oh, by the way, I share what I realized and did with my team. It demonstrates vulnerability, constant learning, a bias for action, and of course, it's constantly incrementally improving the business in ways that a more seasoned, more comfortable leader typically would not. Uh, and so that approach to business is this blend of using our expertise but realizing there's, there's always a better way. And so those teams having that mindset and living it and being willing to move fast and break things, um, but all rooted in being obsessed with the customer and the franchisee, in our case, our key stakeholder, um, that is what's most important, not just building a strategy, but actually being able to execute it. Let's turn to talk about the future of food and what you're seeing out there. So there's clearly been a lot of secular trends that are impacting the broader consumer and retail space. So we've talked about technology, desire yeah. for convenience, health and wellness. How are you thinking about all of these in terms of what could impact both from the macro basis and for your business over the next yeah. five to 10 years? I'll take the health and wellness piece first. It's, it's in many ways the simplest. Um, the truth is when we progress as humans on things that affect our lives, like health and wellness trends, consumption trends, we never go backward, right? We never go backward. That's the truth. The question is at what rate will it continue to move down the path it's going? That's the question and that's a bit of what's changed over time and I um, love, we love to use this example um, around yogurt. And you think about how many of us in, in North America in particular uh, grew up on very sweet yogurts, the Dannons, the Yoplait's of the world, little cups of creamy sugar. Uh, and how delicious. that, creamy delicious, yogurt. delicious. Um, but think about how that category has evolved. And in those early days of the transition, that sweeter yogurt consumer, which is typically a generational divide, not always, but typically, would eat the new product in the marketplace that was less sweet, more protein forward, more thick, and think, oh, you know, sort of like certain beverages to some people are kombucha, right? It's an acquired taste, not for everyone. Now it's for everyone, and now it's the old thing that is now the acquired taste. People aren't going backward. We'll be eating like blocks of protein or something going forward. Um, so, so that's true. Um, however, just because people will continue to move down uh, a path of healthfulness and not just want it and think it, but actually alter their consumption habits and their purchasing habits down that path, which they have. You know, they used to say, 
we used to say, I want something healthy, but then I would buy the least healthy thing possible. Now behaviors are a little closer to what people say. However, our most successful year-over-year -year comp sales brand for years and years has been Cinnabon. <laughs> so that just because there are healthfulness trends doesn't mean that people don't still want to indulge. However, what we as humans in a progressive society with access to options demand is when we're gonna be a little bad, it had better be so worth it. And so that's where you see this um, death of the middle, right? death of the middle of retail, death of the middle of the pricing tier, death of the middle of, of product positioning. If you're not kind of toward one edge or the other, very clearly and honestly indulgent and so proud of being bad for you, but good for that minute, it's not good for your butt, but it's good for your soul type thing. Um, Lifetime or, on the hips. That's right. In it on the, um, lifetime on the hips. Kind of or thing, yeah. so healthful functional food. When you start getting too much in that cloudy middle, you lose market differentiation and lose the ability to win, and then it's just commoditized. And, and so we believe the consumer continues to move down the healthfulness journey, and at some point that affects mass market, um, you know, middle America commercial brands. It really does. We've run sandwich and deli chains for a long time, and the degree to which those healthfulness trends matter and matter enough to change our business varies from region to region, uh, from brand to brand, market to market, but there is a certain point where you know, the minimum you must do has raised, um, whether it's ingredient transparency, quality, availability of options, um, healthfulness of ingredients. So health, it's pretty clear, but the art within that science of understanding is knowing how to apply it to your brand and business in a way that's relevant to your consumer and to make those changes at a pace that the business can handle, which is not easy, and at a pace that the customer can believe, that they should trust that that change is something that would come from you, your brand, your business. So health is the easy piece. Convenience is the wild rocket ride right now. Um, but if we're honest, it has been for decades. You know, you think about delivery broadly, that's not new, it's just tech-enabled. Uh, last mile delivery enabled by the sharing economy <laughs> of contract workers and drivers. Um, so so delivery is not new. Convenience isn't new, but it used to be convenience stores and drive-throughs. Um, now with compression of time, which is actually complicated by access to technology, not necessarily holistically improved by it, um, certainly anything that can speed up a customer's access to product is going to win with the consumer. It does not mean it's economically viable. We all know the models that are enabling convenience are not profitable on their own, um, but the customer's winning. And what we're seeing happen around the world, look no farther than China as the pinnacle example, where the cost of delivery to the consumer is zero. Right? What happens when the cost is zero? and you can get anything you want in 15, 20, 30 minutes. Well, you look at the success of luck and coffee. Absolutely, right? it's that's a, a, beautiful, a perfect example. Or what's happening with um, cloud kitchens in, um, in China, what's happening with other delivery services. So once as a consumer, as a, uh, even within our lifestyle, we get used to having that speed and that cost structure of access to convenience, you don't go backward. <laughs> Right, you start leaning into the other products and services that also provide that speed and convenience. We're a ways away from that because we don't have the density to provide the efficiency of the routes in many markets in the United States. So you gotta look out elsewhere um, to 20, 30 million person cities um, to really see this play out. But ultimately getting to zero delivery costs to the customer is sort of the holy grail that busts open the model. 
And that will require a few things for it to become true in the United States. It will require um, a different investor approach um, because they need a lower cost of capital or long, very patient uh, financial sponsors so that they don't have to charge the cost to the retailers and the merchants and the customers that they currently do. You know, a few things have to happen, but that's what's happening in China. And that's what's starting to happen very slowly here. So we see that only increasing and the brands that are winning are figuring out how to play there. Uh, and then tech, of course, is the foundation of all those things. But I like to think about tech in, in a bit of a broader sense, not just food and retail, but what technology is doing to change the landscape of work, how people work, distributed work teams, distributed workforce. When we work non-traditional hours, when we work in different places, that changes how we consume, how we order, when we eat, that changes traffic patterns in streets, it changes the valuation of real estate because of where people do and don't go. I mean, that's the big like, <laughs> blow your mind idea when you have a large established uh, base of franchises. But when you're also, like us at Focus Brands, we're big, but we're small enough to be nimble. Um, we're flexible enough and honest enough about where the consumer is going to break our own patterns so that we, our brands, our business, and certainly our franchisees can make the most of this convergence of trends. In addition to being president and COO of a big multinational global company, you're also, uh, you also spend a lot of time as an advisor and an investor to startups. So how do you think yeah. about the bookends of those two roles? What do, you, what do you bring to each? What do you gather from each? And how do you approach it? Yeah, um, having one arm in the startup or small company high growth worlds and then larger commercial, certainly franchise partnered world is this beautiful contrast and tension. Um, the, the largest area where there's a gap is speed. Um, when you're small, you can move fast. When you don't have a ton of uh, invested institutional assets, practices, belief systems, compensation programs, you can kind of do whatever you want and that's what makes small competition so dangerous and so effective. On the other hand, being large and commercial, we have the scale to make investments. We have the talent to reach into across brands and organizations that a small startup would not have. Um, so, so the synergies there are quite interesting. On the startup side, I can advise companies and say, you know, here's how this movie is going to end, and help them really think about talent, building talent. You know, what what's hire three, hire four, hire five, or what if you're hiring more people tomorrow than you even had in your office yesterday? What happens to culture, and how do you think about that? Um, and because we go through acquisition and other business experiences, I can be really helpful in, in helping CEOs, COOs, founders um, think through that. And I love it. It makes the, all the pain and mistakes I've made a lot, a lot more worth it. But where it really shows up in adding value to focus brands is it helps us be nimble. Um, our CEO is constantly challenging us to disrupt ourselves so we're not getting disrupted. So here's what that looks like at Focus Brands. One, it might mean I'm bringing a tool or a technology that our peers in the industry aren't using because they have old ways of thinking. They only have access to the typical vendor shows and you know, resources that the industry has. I can plug in a resource. Uh, maybe it's a SaaS platform or a data platform or a marketing idea, or maybe it's just a new food product that's probably not on the radar of most mid to large cap companies yet because they're not hanging out in the startup world. They're too small for anybody to pay attention to. And so that gives focus and advantage. You can, we can literally bring these small companies that are typically cheaper, faster, and far more connected to where the consumer is today than who the established players are. Uh, bringing those into focus, whether that means bringing it into one of our brands or, or into our platform. 
Um, the other way it shows up is bringing that startup thinking, hackathons, solving our own problems, taking non-traditional approaches uh, to market opportunity, and then leading to what is clearly, if you look at us and research our business, our approach to what we like to call co-opetition. We're one of the largest co-brand food owner organizations in the world, Cinnabons and grocery stores. We're inside of other businesses like Yum Brands. We've got a product at Taco Bell, a product at Pizza Hut, um, KFC, and many other, not just Yum, but many other businesses. And that is a bit startup thinking. Right? It's yeah. not being so, um, so focused on our roots that we let our roots become our anchor. Um, but it, I, I love this line my mom writes on my birthday card every year. It's what we use for the business, and it is the bridge between the startup world and the large commercial world, which is don't forget where you came from. The truth is in our roots, but we should never let it solely define us. If Cinnabon hadn't evolved in product, if it hadn't started showing up in other channels, if Jamba um, had not have pivoted in the way we're pivoting it now, it wouldn't be set up for the next phase of growth, and we don't have to look very far for the list of companies that have not in the past and today cannot get out of their own way in order to compete in the marketplace. And the only way they can compete is through acquisition of small high growth startups that are connected. They can't do it on their own. Uh, and it also helps us have this bridge between small business world, big business world, a very honest conversation around when we need to build a capability, should we build it ourselves, rent it, or just go buy it? And building it ourselves is rarely the answer. But in large, established, mature organizations that are protectionists, that are used to doing everything, that own everything, they try to build it. And they get distracted, and it's not their core capability or competency. It doesn't work. They end up shutting it down, and they've wasted time, resources, talent, and capital. Uh, and, and we're a bit more um, pragmatic about the things we shouldn't be messing with, and then going out to find great partners, some of which are startups, some of which are large, established companies. Uh, to help us resource the organization with things we need to grow. Well, I think we're out of time, Kat, but really wanted to thank you for your candid comments on how you run your business and your brands today. Really inspirational overall, so thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on June 20th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.